All right, gentlemen, uh, if you got the email, you know we're in the Gospel of Mark, and that's where we're going to spend some time over the coming months. And one thing I would encourage you to do is sit down at some point in the coming days or weeks and read the entire Gospel of Mark in one setting. Now, if you've never read a whole book of the Bible before, the first thing you might be asking is, is that legal? Is there a sin involved if I read the whole Bible? No, you can do it. The second question you might think is, won't that take forever? I mean, Jesus' ministry lasted for years. Won't it take me years to read Mark? No, there's 16 chapters. It's, it's really like reading a very long article in a, in a big uh, um, magazine. It's really not a long section. And But what you get out of reading it in one setting is a little bit of what the early Christians would have felt when they read it. They would have sat down and they would have binged Mark, is what we use that now. When a new series falls or drops, as they say, on a streaming service, they binge that series, at least in my household, when a new thing comes out. Some of, the, some of these streaming services, they string you along week to week. Mark doesn't string you along week to week. I will string you along week to week, but I would encourage you, on your own, sit down and read it. Just that whole Gospel of Mark, very doable. You can probably do it in an hour or so. And uh, just take a quiet place and a quiet moment and maybe a cup of coffee and read it. You'll find that if you've never done this before with a book of the Bible, what you may find is a brand new spiritually life-giving habit. I remember the first time I read Romans cover to cover. It was an expectation of a class and Romans is thick, and I mean, it's, it's like uh, eating a whole box of like some sort of granola cereal with no milk. It is, uh, by the end, your jaws hurt, but it, it is fulfilling. And so the first time I did that, I came away thinking, why have I never done this before? So if you've never done it, there you go. So that was all for free. That's the, ab that's the advertisement for today's lesson. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to look at a couple parts in the Gospel of Mark, but in particular today, we're going to look at verses 14 right on through the end of 20. And before we get into that, so you can find it if you want to find it, but before we get into that, just an opening question here is, uh, what is it that prevents people from coming to Christ? Now this, I mean, this isn't rhetorical, so I'd love your response on it. And for some of you, if you came to Christ a little bit later in life, you might have a, well, this is why I didn't. And it'd be neat to share if you're comfortable. But what are some of the reasons that prevent people from having a relationship with Christ? What's that? Self-dependency, right? Yeah, that's a big one for sure. Time and commitment. Yeah, right. Every time you get like some some friend who wants you to earn that extra five grand a month through Amway or whatever, you're like, I, I, I don't have a lot of time, man. I'm busy already. I mean, is that five grand coming a check today or do I have to earn it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's probably at least one guy in the room, no show of hands, was like, I came to Christ later because of that very excuse. I wanted to, I remember I grew up Baptist and they were preacher was always talking about the end times, and I was, I was a young teenage boy, no girlfriend, I mean, years away from getting married, and I remember just being terrified the rapture would occur before I was 
with my wife and just thinking of dying with, as a virgin. Just, it, it was like the most terrifying thought to a 16-year-old Baptist youth. I'm like, I want the Lord to come back, but not yet. Not yet. So uh, I had some experiences yet to uh, encounter. So he did that? Uh, for those of you online, Charlie would go to church and the Baptist preacher would meet him at the door saying, what was it again? You're, you're like, you're... Charlie, you know you're going to hell. So that was a, what an evangelist. Just a heart for people, that one. You know, it's, a, it's amazing. Those are those moments where I'm like, you know, if, if God used Balaam's ass to tell the truth, that's in the Bible, by the way, I didn't just cuss. It's a, it goes by donkey as well, but I prefer the old English. And uh, sometimes King James is way better. And, uh, and, but there's, if God can use Balaam's ass he can sometimes use the hellfire and brimstone pastor, but he might have evangelized a few people away from Christ too. Yeah. What are some of the other reasons? I mean, think about it. This, this is a faith that's 2,000 years old. It's not hiding under a rock. There's over a billion people who claim to be some way, shape, or form connected to Jesus Christ. There's scriptures that are uh, at least used to be in every hotel room uh, in the drawer somewhere put there by the Gideons. The stories are common. People quote Jesus, so it's not like people don't know the story. So what is it that, that keeps people, prevents people? Cultural oh, cultural back. That is true. If you have a cultural background or beliefs from a, maybe a different religious point of view or from an irreligious point of view. Yeah. Oh, fear of the unknown. What do you mean by that? That's a very good point. Sometimes you... In telling the story of Christ, it's like he loves you, and it's like, is he a stalker? I mean, what is like? So how to how to know what what to expect, Gene? Oh man, got got good theology there, Gene. I mean, the desires of our flesh, they crowd out. They they they. <laughs> Greg said that's what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> was that you, Greg? Is it okay? Uh, but 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 um, but they they crowd out those that that. Basically, they, they snuff out the spirit who says, no, you're a sinner in need of Christ. Exposure. Exposure. Say, what do you mean by that, exposure? Well, that's right. Yeah, the, the Apostle Paul says that. How can people come to Christ if they've not heard? That's a huge part of global missions work, is to go into parts of the world, very tough parts of the world. We have a family friend that's going into Thailand in a part of the world that culturally is not Christian for sure, that's sometimes hostile to Christ, and she's going to go in and, and teach English as a second language. So basically as an English tutor, and when people are like, well, why are you here? You, you can, even in hostile territory, kind of talk about who you are, so... Friends, they don't come to Christ because of friends. What do you mean? Yeah, your friends pull you away. It's not like, even if you were like, I was thinking about going to church, your friends would be like, why? You know, and this, by the way, speaking of culture today, this is becoming one of the cultural issues that's, that in fact, uh, friends of mine who live in the San Francisco Bay Area, some of the attitudes in that part, which is extremely kind of progressive-minded, uh, I don't just I don't mean politics here. I mean like value systems, and and so there's there's even some attitudes like if you took your kid to church, you are that that's a that's a that's a toxic situation for your child. They're going to be told they're bad people, and they need somebody else. So you could even have a friend culture around you that that stamps out any interest. 
What are other? Yeah. False teachers. Now, what do you mean by that? The false teachers preventing people from coming to Christ. So you get false teachers who turn people off. Even in their false teaching, they turn people off to true teaching. I'd add one more to that, which is then there's the false teacher that brings people over into something they think is following Christ and it's not. And now they're devout in the false teaching. That's been a problem since the beginning of the church. That's not new, by the way. That, that is, uh, that's been around. There's a guy named Arrhenius. He wrote in the, in the second century. And uh, his most famous work is a, is a book called Against Heresies. And where, where he picks apart a lot of the false teaching that was being uh, commonly taught in that era. So, yeah. Pride. pride. Oh, yeah. They say, I, I, I think a pride is that last sin that dies just before we do. You know, it's a, it, we, it beats us, uh, it, we beat it on the deathbed, but boy, oh boy, it's, uh, it takes till our deathbed. John Wesley would say that too. He would say, you might be perfect when you finally die, but it might be just a moment before you have finally died. It might, in that last moment, pride, it's hard to be proud when you're laying there in the bed uh, in that situation. One more, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people don't want to come to Christ because they do know what they might have to give up. And they haven't quite, what, what they've missed is they haven't experienced fullness in Christ. So they think it's just loss. They don't know that it's actual gain, but all they can think of is I'm giving up something, which incidentally, uh, a little illustration, and then we'll get into the text. Uh, on Mother's Day, Mother's Day, you may or may not know this, that's the third highest typically in church calendars. It's the third holy day. Uh, Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. It, I kid you not, it goes like that in order of attendance. Christmas, huge attendance. Easter, big attendance. Mother's Day, and there's a theory behind it, is because mom says, the matriarch says, Sure would be nice if you come to church. All I want for Mother's Day is your salvation. Come to church. She doesn't say it like that, but she's like, just come to church. So everyone comes. You know that Father's Day is one of the lowest. That's not the fourth highest. That's actually in the top five of the lowest. Because it's that, Father's Day is like, you know what? It's Father's Day. I'm going to have a Bloody Mary. Hit the links and barbecue a little bit later. It's my day, so uh, I'm going to honor God by not going. Uh, and so if you don't want to go... You don't have to go. And so he leads all his sons into perdition that way. So anyhow, that's just a, that's just a bold-faced way of saying either be here on Father's Day or enjoy the brimstone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Terry, what? Oh, well, there's that issue too in there. And we're going to get into that. That's a perfect segue. I paid Terry to help um, segue the lesson right into the text. So let's get into the text. So um, somebody with a loud and clear voice, Mark 1 just verses 14 and 15, just as loud as you can, read that out for everybody. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. So one of the reasons, we touched on a variety of reasons that prevent people from coming to Christ. But what we're going to talk about here this morning, we're going to dive into just two of the most probably significant ones, and we see it here in Mark's gospel, is number one is a misunderstanding or just plain don't understand the actual message of Christ. That's one of the things. It's, it's a factor of the false teaching. It's a, it's a factor of, as Terry mentioned, people who think they're already in. There's a, there's a variety of issues. And it, one of the biggest ones that prevent people from coming to Christ is they misunderstand the message. 
They think, ah, I have to give up Bloody Marys and golfing. I can't have any more. I got some sinning to do, and sinning's fun, and following God's not fun. There's a complete misunderstanding of the message. And then the second, and we're going to get into that in a few moments, is uh, actually something that Gene last week touched on. Gene over here, not Gene over there, uh, that touched on, which is our own inertia. That is, we're already in stuck in a particular position. We're in motion in a particular direction. And so to actually join up would require a shift in our direction, a shift in our inertia, or some movement on our part. So we'll get to that in a moment, but let's first hit this one. In verse 15, Jesus comes and, the, and he has a really clear message. And it's interesting when you look at it he says to him or he says he says the time has come the kingdom of god has come near repent and believe the good news and so um the time has come it's another way of saying like the end is near and uh of course it, it, uh, at least most of us in this room would remember the the jokes about the crazy looking uh prophet kind of person carrying around a placard at some parade and, and they always showed up where people gathered and it always says the end is near it could be the fourth of july parade where we're honoring the country and there's this guy somewhere in the mix going the end is near and uh, of course there's never a big group of people like oh sir tell us about that we're so interested most people are like it's the crazy guy in town again showing up to ruin things but there's this great misunderstanding of the message. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want us to dive a little bit more. When you hear the word repent, I don't, I'm not looking for the definition. We talked about that last week. How does that, when you hear the word, what emotions, feelings does this conjure up for you? Okay, there's a definition, but how does it make you feel, Charlie? I mean, when you hear it, or maybe go back to the old guy, you know, pre-Christ, when you heard the word, what did, how did you feel with that word? Convicted. Convicted. That doesn't feel good. Humble. Makes you feel humble? In trouble. In trouble. Judged. A change of affection. A change of affection. Good definition. In trouble. <laughs> that when you hear the word repent, just quick show of hands. How many, like, I'm not talking as Christian. We're in a Bible study right now, and so everyone's tempted to raise their hand. Like, it's the, it reminds me of the old, whenever you get a, a, an environment like this, it reminds me of the old story that was told of, of uh, the little kid, little 10-year-old in Sunday school, and his teacher is asking just a simple question. What's, what's brown, has a fuzzy tail, and scurries up trees and hides nuts for winter? And the little boy raises his hand and says, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to go with Jesus. <laughs> and this is the danger in an environment like this, is that we get into religious, like, hey, when you hear the word repent, how do you feel? Awesome. Really good. I feel terrific about it, because it's what I'm supposed to say, because it's church. All right, let's pretend for a minute we're at a nightclub instead. When you hear the word repent, how does that make... How, how many of you go, I feel terrific. It just makes me feel, deep down inside, I think, yes, more of that for me, please. Most of us, so this comes back to, it, it's a combination of things. It's a swirl of emotion. On one level, I feel terrible. 
I don't like being told what I'm doing is wrong. And I mean, you guys might love it, but me personally, I'm not a fan. I, I really love the part where it's like, you're awesome, you're doing a great job. That's one of my favorite things. One of my least favorite things is, you're not doing something you ought to do, or what you are doing you ought not do. I'm not, a, I'm not crazy about that feeling. At the same time, as OA said, there is a piece where there's a yearning to do what is right. Unless we've so burned our conscience, unless we've so calloused our hearts, we probably have in us buried somewhere an awareness, this isn't how I ought to live and this is not how I ought to do things. But I bring this up only because when we get into these Bible passages, because we've been around church, a lot of us, and so we kind of just go on by the, the verbiage. And we kind of shrug it off. Yeah, Jesus was always, he was calling people to repent and believe. That's good. Okay, I'm for that. And, and there's a misunderstanding of those two concepts in the minds of most people. So I went to a Bible college in downtown Chicago. It was founded by the 19th century evangelist uh, Dwight Moody, Moody Bible Institute. And Moody Bible Institute existed for one purpose, and that was to raise up future pastors and missionaries and people like that. It wasn't, it was, think of it as like a technical school for those going into ministry. There were no liberal arts programs. You couldn't come out a school teacher. You couldn't come out an accountant. We didn't have programs like that. You could come out basically and be a pastor or a pastor. Those were your two options. Or a pastor overseas, a missionary. So you had no real other options. But there was another Bible college that was about an hour away in northern Indiana. And that was a they, they had a big banner, fundamentalist, King James only, and there was a whole list of things that they were for, as well as a list of things they were against. And occasionally, some of their Bible college students would come to our Bible college and preach the gospel and tell us that we needed to repent. And um, when they eventually would get kicked off our campus by uh, campus safety, which I'm pretty sure the, the young students from the Indiana Bible College assumed at that point they were being persecuted for Christ. When they got thrown off of our Bible College campus for being obnoxious, they would go down to Rush Street, which is where all the parties happen, nightclubs and bars and things like that. And I occasionally would see those guys down there, and it was impressive because they would stand uh, I wish I had a fire hydrant right here. You know a fire hydrant has the nozzles on both sides. They would literally straddle to get above the crowd, and they would stand on the fire hydrant. And they all had Bibles that did this, and they would, they would just, like, the, it was as if the Bible was going to take off, like it was a bird in flight. And they would point like this and scream their lungs out at the wicked people. And... Uh, I would sometimes watch, it was sort of like uh, street musicians. People would sometimes gather around looking for like a hat to throw a quarter in, like this show is great. I mean, this guy's a nut. And, uh, but you know what? I never ever saw them in a side conversation with anyone going, tell me about this God of yours. He sounds captivating. And unfortunately, when we hear the term repent, that naturally gets in our minds. And the the Greek word there is, uh, is the same basic Greek word where we get our word like metamorphosis. Meta, it starts with meta. And it's this idea of transformation or change. And so Jesus was calling people to a transformation and a change. 
and to believe. To have a, a newfound confidence in the message. And what was the message? The kingdom of God is near. That's the message. Which begs the question, what kingdom is he talking about? Because if you're waiting for a literal kingdom, we're still waiting. And the best minds on this have suggested that Jesus himself is speaking of himself. The kingdom of God is near. I'm standing here right with you. And when the message of Christ becomes embodied in the believer, the kingdom comes near. So if you think about it, the person, we've all known those people in life that were like dirty, no good people. You know, they were, they were I don't mean they were no good but, or uh, uh, physically dirty. They might have been, but, but I mean, they, they, they were people that when, we, when people talked about them, that was sort of in hushed tones, like, oh, yeah, yeah, not a bright future, that one. And then there's this transformation. There's this turning around. And there's this marvel at the transformation that has taken place. And I don't mean, you know, there's some people that experience this, we all know, the person who was a couch potato and the next thing they're running marathons and bodybuilding. I don't mean, that, that's a type of transformation that you can see. I'm talking about the spiritual life of a person when Christ becomes a glowing ember inside of them. And we all know people like that. Hopefully, we're like that. And other people look around and go, I, I want what they have. And it shows up in the, like the strangest of places. It shows up in the counterintuitive moments of life. When we should get really angry and frustrated, we're not. When we say something we later regret, we return to the situation, apologize, make recompense. And people are like, that's weird. When we lift other people up around us, when we sacrifice for the good of others, the kingdom of God is drawing near. And this is what I mean by the thing that is the barrier that keeps people from a relationship with God or joining in a closer walk with him, I, I think is a misunderstanding of what God is calling us to. It's the assumption that no more Bloody Marys in golf, no more fun. I got, I got to get some fun out of my system before I come to Christ. And yet, once you have Christ, that, that's the crazy part. It's better than all those other things. So it's not that you don't enjoy a sport. It's that the sport doesn't own you like it once did. It's not that you don't like nice cars. It's just now your self-worth isn't on what you drive. It's this transformational effect that leaves you a better, happier, more contented person. It's marvelous. And so Jesus is preaching because, here's the thing, if Jesus was just like, hey people, shame on you. You are wicked and evil. Now people might have come, just like that preacher at Rush Street in Chicago. People might have gathered around. No one's signing up for that. There's not many people that sign up for that. Jesus was saying something and expressing something in such a way that it was captivating. Okay, so what keeps people from a relationship with Christ? A lot of times it's a misunderstanding of the message. The message is true. It's repent and believe. But repent and believe does not mean what you think it probably means. It means something far better than anything you think it means. All right, well, so let's hit the second one. 
the other reason people don't come to Christ is our own inertia. And someone, again, loud, uh, read verses 16 through 20. 16 through 20. So what, what would have prevented those four guys, the first four disciples called in to the whole deal, what would prevent them from following Christ? Their their livelihood, their labors, their dad. It's a fascinating one. So if we understand uh, a, a verse in the Gospel of John correctly, um, John and James, sons of Zebedee, their mother is sister, potentially, if we understand John correctly, is sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're first cousins, if we understand the Gospel of John correctly. And if that's true, it's not just that their dad could prevent them. Uh, Uncle Zebedee could have said, you are not following your cousin on some crazy adventure. You have work to do. I have nieces and nephews, and if any of them tried to sabotage my kids' career plans, I'd have words. So there's the family situation. What else would prevent those four men from following Jesus? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, how many of you are a little type A? You like to know what the plan is. You operate from an agenda, or if no agenda is available, you make the agenda. Uh, I, I'm a planner. Do you remember those things called month at a glance or week at a glance? I don't know if they're still out there. My my uh, my friends used to say I kept a century at a glance because I had I had planned where my grandchildren would go to college. Like I was like I was that's that's me. And so if if the teacher's like, hey, follow me to where? Okay. The hard heart. Yeah, that could. I mean, if these guys, if their heart is not in the right condition or at the right moment because whose heart hasn't hardened up at some point or another mine hardens up usually friday mid-morning and then it softens again but no i'm just kidding but but it it's it, it's the timing and the heart unknown yeah i mean john the baptist we just were told john the baptist was under he was arrested by this point and as as john is languishing in a jail jesus is essentially taking over that ministry. The same people, a lot of the same people who followed John start to follow Jesus. And look where it got John. Hey, you want to follow me? I'm not sure. Any of you at some point or another went home to your wife and without consulting her said, I quit my job? I did that once. I don't recommend it. It's, it's the, you, you know, I don't care what you pay the therapist. They all tell you, they, they're all like, you did What? like, hey, I'm paying the bills, man. How about on my side? No, you're right. And Peter, if, again, if you grew up Catholic, and if you are Catholic, then Peter wasn't married uh, or maybe was widowed. For if you grew up Baptist, they talked about Peter's wife all the time because he had a mother-in-law, so it would seem hard to get a mother-in-law without a wife. Uh, I don't know why you'd get one without a wife, but some guys like that sort of thing, I suppose. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, imagine that, Peter's wife. In fact, there's a, if you watch the series The Chosen, there's some inter- interesting tension from time to time in that fictional. It's a fictional series. Don't get too excited. It's good, but what else? J- just think, put yourself back in your, you're in your 20s, and you're building a career, and it's working. You're making the right progressive steps for 
Simon and Andrew, what we're told is there's a, the terminology that's used, they're on the lake shore and they're casting what looked like big circular nets. You kind of can see a fisherman and the nets would have weights on the edges and it would just sink down and then they would cinch it up and pull it in and they'd try to catch fish that were along the shore. And um, James and John, their dad has such a successful operation, he not only has a boat, but he has hired workers. And so all four of them are getting it done. They have a plan, and they're working the plan. And uh, uh, according to Josephus, there are over 300 fishing vessels on the Sea of Galilee at this time. It was a big, big operation. And most people in that neck of the woods didn't enjoy a good juicy steak. And as you already probably know, they didn't do a whole lot with bacon or ham. So there, there was not a lot of meat options for them. They didn't, most people didn't have cattle or goat or sheep to eat. That was special, but they had fish. And so here's guys that are getting the job done. And Jesus says, I have, there's a change of plans. And uh, the reason I, th- I think this is good for us to ponder is to think about the, the choices that we make in life and the barriers in our lives that would prevent us from taking our next step with Christ. Now, if you, if you look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, what you'll realize is there was a backstory before this story. Mark is telling us the events we need to know for his unfolding story. He's not trying to give us any exhaustive details here. He has some details, but he's given us the cliff notes. So if we were to look at all four Gospels, what we piece together is Peter, Andrew, James, and John already had an ongoing relationship with Jesus. It wasn't good news. It wasn't some weird 60s hippie guru walking along the beach like, hey, fellas, follow me. And then they're like, I got nothing better to do. He looks weird. Never seen him before. You want to go do it? That's not the story here. They know who he is. He knows who they are. It's not random. He's chosen them any more than it's random. They chose him. But in the process, they have to surrender something. Now, later in the Gospels, they're back fishing again from time to time. They didn't burn the ships, literally. But, but they were in the situation where they had to make a, an abrupt, radical, total change. And they do. And so um, my parting question for you as you head off to lunch with maybe some of the fellows or something, something to talk about is, is, is there a, 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 a situation you find yourself in that it's not a bad situation? It's, it's, it's not an immoral situation. It's, it's not a dishonoring situation of God. Like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, you, you're getting something good done. But Christ is calling you to something more, a deeper and more intense walk with him, a new area of service to him. He says, come, you gotta, you've been good at fishing for fish. You're going to fish for people. Is there something that God's calling you to do, to lay down the nets, to get out of that boat? And uh, I bet in this room it's all of us. I don't think there's a season of life, a stage at life, where there's not a new possibility for us to take some kind of faith-filled risk. I know it. 
it's just how it works. And the, and the question is, on the back end of that, when we reflect back at that kind of critical journey moment, will we be glad for the decision we made? We know the names of these guys. There were, according to Josephus, over 300 fishing vessels. If you just assume there are 10 guys assigned to every vessel, there were 3,000 guys plying the waters in the Sea of Galilee. Besides the four mentioned, do you know how many fishermen we know by name? Now, the point isn't to be remembered for 2,000 years in history and to be revered as saints and leaders of the church, although maybe, maybe it is. Maybe not for our honor and glory, but for the honor and the glory of the one who called us out. And so uh, I got to believe that there was probably never a point, I bet even when Peter... And as the story of the church goes, he was crucified upside down in Rome because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified right side up as his Savior was. I, I doubt very highly, even in that moment, not recorded, don't know, I'm just speculating, I doubt very highly in the moment the one who refused to be crucified in the same manner of his Savior because he didn't feel worthy of that probably wasn't hanging upside down on the cross thinking, should have stayed on the boat. I'm pretty sure, even in that moment, knowing that his life was slipping away on this earth, isn't it all for all of us? I got to believe even in that moment, he was glad for the decision he made. So don't, I guess my last word is don't wuss out, fellas. Let's not, let's not wuss out. We have an opportunity here to show the, the metal and the character and the courage these guys did. So let's do that, shall we? Amen. Let me pray. God, thanks for these guys. Thanks for their attention. Thanks for your word. Lord, take what was discussed as each of us were thinking different thoughts during this lesson. Take it. Coalesce it. Turn it into something. Transform us, Lord. Help us be uh, men of valor, men of courage. Help us to be the kind of guys that will set those nets down, get out of that boat, leave the good behind for the greater that's ahead. We trust you with it, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, thanks for letting me be with you. See you next week.